The morning text for this morning's sermon is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I've been reading Revelation. Therefore, when I thought about this image of the seal over this unopened chapter in our history... I couldn't help but say that my confidence is that on Saturday night, Jesus Christ, who was slain and has ransomed men and women for God from all over this city, is going to open this seal. And there is going to ride out a white horse and on the horse, one seated with a sword and a crown will be upon his head and he will ride conquering and to conquer. That's from chapter 6 in the book of Revelation. And the image of that white horse at the blow of the first trumpet after the seals were opened is the image of the victorious spread of the gospel. All the other horses are horrible. The first horse is white and victorious. It is Christ conquering in mission throughout the world. And I believe that what we're up to at Bethlehem is a part of that victory. And the question I want to raise this morning is, why should I or you feel confident that God is in all of this? Why should we, why do I feel welling up within me so much excitement and assurance and confidence that in the next several years, God is going to be working in this place. God is going to prosper the ministries. People are going to be converted to Him. Saints are going to be established. Mission is going to happen. Ministries are going to multiply. Where does that confidence come from? At the end of every summer, I go away for a few days and pray and plan the sermons through the fall. And I try to write down a little paragraph about each sermon and give it to Dean so that he can plan the worship services around what we're doing through December. Here's what I wrote about September 29. Title. Far more than you think. Text, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. The Sunday before we begin the Saturday night service. To create a sense of hope and expectancy that we cannot even imagine what God might be pleased to do through our church for His glory and the good of this city and the hidden peoples if we ventured more on His power and love and less on our moderate calculations. That's what Dean had in hand. That's my goal this morning. 
The reason I feel confident that God is going to overcome every obstacle to this Saturday night venture and to all the other ventures that we engage in through prayer is the picture of God in our text this morning. And I invite you to turn, if you've closed your Bibles, to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and to look with me and to open yourself to the gift of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And therefore, it's fitting as we open our Bibles and put our eyes upon the Word of God and listen to its exposition that we pray that God would give us the gift of faith. And I don't just mean saving faith. I mean that enlarged and expansive faith that reaches out and embraces possibilities of obedience and ministry that we hadn't been able to before. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I am so keenly aware that unless you open the eyes, unless you give ears to hear, even this majestic text will fall stillborn from Paul's mouth and my mouth. But Lord, if you give ears to hear, if you awaken and open the eyes of the heart now, the gift of faith will grow and people will feel encouraged not only about the ministries of our church but about that difficult thing they heard about their own life this week. Grant, I pray, that faith enlarge, that confidence grow, and that your name be exalted in this text. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In verses 20 and 21, which are the verses that I want to focus on mainly, Paul's spirit is soaring in prayer. You can feel that, I hope even as Rick read it. Now unto him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's start with verse 21 and look briefly at each of its four phrases. First, to him be glory. The glory of God. What is it? The glory of God is the beauty and brightness of His infinite perfections. The glory of God is the beauty and the brightness of His infinite manifold attributes and perfections. When your heart breaks out glory to God, you are doing something like what a team of football players do when they carry their coach off the field on their shoulders after a victory. Or like what people do when there is a standing ovation at Orchestra Hall. Or like what people do when they're on the docks waving and shouting as the battleship comes home with the soldiers on it after victory. There is in every one of you, a child, a teenager, or an adult, there is in every one of you the need and the longing to sing a doxology. The word doxology comes from two Greek words, doxa, glory, logos, to speak, to speak glory, 
to glorify. Glory to God is a doxology. And there is that in every one of us. Some people may sing their doxology with a lot more lustiness for athletes or rock stars or architecture or space technology or politicians or purple mountains majesties than they do for God. But there is no denying it's there in your heart. We were made to worship. You were made to have a hero to brag about. That's why you always have one. Even if it's butterflies or coins or stamps. Everybody has something that they doxology about. It's in you. And therefore... The, the idea of doxology is a commonplace thing. It's just as common as $3 dome seats. The main reason people feel awkward or cramped about singing or shouting glory to God is that for them, Kent Herbick or Tommy Kramer or Neville Mariner or Garrison Keeler are more real than God is real. That's why it's easier to talk up such people than it is to talk up God. So the meaning of doxology is clear to anybody who's ever admired anything. You have done it. You know what it is. But the experience of soaring in your heart like Paul is soaring in these two verses, with glory to God, that experience is only known by people who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear that behind all of our heroes, there is a majestic Creator God in whom those little people are just dim reflections. Paul's admiration for God was boundless. And so at the end of these three chapters, he is soaring. Glory to God. Second phrase. To him be glory in the church. To Tommy Kramer be glory in the Metrodome. To Neville Mariner be glory in Orchestra Hall. To Garrison Keeler be glory in the world or the state theater. Whichever it is. I can't remember. Uh, But look at verse 10. To God be glory in the church. Verse 10 of chapter 3 is a magnificent and almost unbelievable verse about the church. Paul says in the preceding verse that the plan of the mystery of the ages in God who created all things is this. Now verse 10. That through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Just think of it. The reason God created all things and called the church into being is so that he might have um, a sufficiently diversified and yet unified system of mirrors with which to reflect to the universe and the principalities and powers 
the many-colored and many-folded wisdom of his mind. Do you see that? The church exists to be a system of mirrors, perfectly designed by the one who designs the body, to reflect back to the universe and anyone who wants to watch, Satan and all the hosts, that God is infinitely wise. That's why you exist in the church. Therefore, since Bethlehem is a little miniature, a little miniature expression of the church universal, your destiny and my destiny is to be a visible, living, audible doxology to God. Or mirrors of God's glorious wisdom. That's why we exist. And that has to do with Saturday night and the prosperity of the ministry and the outreach of this church. But more on that later. Third phrase in this verse. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So, if the church is the theater in which the principalities and powers of the universe can behold or see the manifold wisdom of God, then what's Jesus? Jesus is the embodiment of that wisdom. Jesus is the main character in every drama that plays itself out in the theater of the church. So that when the principalities and powers stoop down from their mid-heaven and look in, they see Christ at the center of every action and every drama. Or change the image for a moment. The church is now a hospital, okay? It's a hospital. God established the hospital. God equipped and sent His Son to be the only physician-surgeon in the hospital. And so God gets glory as all these people start getting well in the hospital. And His Son gets glory because they're all getting well under His physician hand and surgery. And so the way to translate or paraphrase Ephesians 3.21 is, To God be glory in the hospital and in the, the surgeon that the Father gave and established. And fourth and finally, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yesterday I asked Karsten, who tomorrow becomes a full-fledged teenager, I said, uh, tell me a rock star so I can use it as an illustration along with Garrison Keillor and Neville Mariner and Tommy Kramer. Tell me a rock star. And I said, is, um, is Michael Jackson still around? And he said, nobody talks about him anymore. And I said, that's all I need. Glory to Michael Jackson in the discos and in the kids for one Tenth of one generation. Amen. Not much comparison, is there? Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Listen. 
the most admirable people in the world. The greatest people you could think of. Here's my list. St. Paul, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Whitfield, William Carey, Jonathan Edwards, Billy Graham. The greatest of men you could list are like meteors in the sky of history. One third of a second they are on the scene and they're gone. But God is like the sun. And generation after generation, people behold this same glorious sun never fading in its majesty and glory. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So that's what we mean when we sing the Gloria Patri, Latin for glory to God. We sang it this morning. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. That's what this text is saying. Nobody just made that up out of the blue. Someday... The glory of God is going to fill the world like the waters cover the sea. And that world of glory is going to be endless. World without end. Amen. Amen. Now, back to verse 20. What was it that set Paul in orbit? He's in orbit, right? What set him in orbit? Biblical doxologies usually contain a phrase or two to tip you off of what set the singer in orbit. For example, the great doxology, probably the greatest in the New Testament, is the last verse of Jude. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the throne of his glory without blemish, with rejoicing, to the only wise God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Now, what set Jude in orbit? He says it real clear. To him... Who is able to keep you from falling? And inside, Jude is saying, He's going to keep me. He's going to keep me. He's going to keep me. Praise God. That's what set him in orbit. A little phrase right in the doxology tips you off. Or take the one that Rick read earlier. Now unto the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever. Amen. What tipped, what, what set Paul off? Uh, set, set him in orbit there in, in 1 Timothy 1.17. King of ages, immortal, invisible, no competitors, only God. His heart's just taken up with the kingly reign of God generation after generation with nobody, not even Satan, giving any significant competition. Now, what about verse 20? What set Paul in orbit here? Now unto him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. It's pretty plain, isn't it? What sets Paul in orbit here is the thought that in the church, remember that from verse 21, that in the church God can do more 
than we have asked Him to do. And He can do more than we have ever thought He could do. If Paul were the pastor of this church, I think that every time he lifted his eyes to heaven and saw God, he would hear God saying, I can do more for this church than you've asked yet or than you have thought of yet. And so Paul would stop praying, get off his knees, go out, ask for power, and plan a new venture of faith, like a Saturday night service. And then he would come back and get on his knees and look up to God. And God would say, I can do more than you have asked or ever thought. And he would get off his knees and he would go out and he would start a new ministry, like a ministry to chemically dependent people. And then he would come back and get on his knees and, and look up to God and God would say, I can do more than you have asked or ever thought. And every time Paul, as the pastor of this church, would extend himself beyond the limits of what he had originally thought possible, he would return and hear the same word, more, 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 abundantly more than you can ever think. Now, have I exaggerated that verse? I don't know any other way to interpret it but to say that whenever you come back to God, having fulfilled an obedient act of faith, he will always say, I can do more through your church. Now, don't miss the fact that the form of verse 20 carries part of the meaning. And by form, I mean the fact that it's a doxology. It is a song. It is a shout. Now, if you don't see that, you might simply say, well, what this verse teaches is that God is sovereign. God is all-powerful and can do anything, and therefore, clearly, He can do more than you can imagine. That is not enough to say about this verse. Because there are a lot of people who believe God is sovereign in their heads. They never sing about it. They never get up in the morning and say, He's sovereign. Glory to God. It never moves their heart. So in order to understand verse 20, you've got to account for why he is soaring, not just for why he has a theology of God's sovereignty. A lot of you got that theology and don't soar. Why is he soaring? We've got to be able to account for that to understand the meaning of verse 20. Here's why I think he's soaring. I think Paul is singing and soaring here because he sees two things, not just one thing. He sees that the power of God over the church is beyond what we can think. The power of God over the church is beyond what we can think. And he sees that the love of God for the church is beyond what we can think. Go back with me to verses 18 and 19. He's praying for Ephesus, for us, that we may have, you see this now at the beginning of verse 18, that we may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ which surpasses the ability to know it. Surpasses knowledge. Now, do you see the parallel between verse 19 and verse 20? Verse 19 says that the love of Christ for the church is beyond what you can know. And verse 20 says, the power of God over the church is beyond what you can think. Now, when these two weather fronts, this massive weather front of God's love that is beyond what you could ever imagine for you and the church, and God's power, which always goes beyond what you could think He would do, for you, when these two weather fronts come and meet in the heart of a believer, you know what the result is? Hurricane Gloria. Wasn't that great of God to do that this week? A doxology. Glory. Glory to God in the highest, who not only has power to do beyond anything I can think And I can think of a lot of things for this church. But also an infinitely great, infinitely wide, long, deep, high love for the church. So I close by asking the question one more time. Where do I get this confidence that it's going to work Saturday night? Where does the constant rebirth of joy and hope and expectation come from in this pastor's heart and in the staff and in so many of you? Well, the answer is this. I believe with all my heart that God loves me and loves this church with an infinite, distinguishing covenant love. I want to talk about that tonight. The covenant love that is unique to God's people. Please come back. If you have trouble feeling loved, if you only conceive of the love that God has for you as the same as the love He has for people who don't believe, you are missing out on something spectacular. 